It's Wednesday, March 16, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, a protester crashes a live broadcast on Russia's most watched newscast. She was holding a sign and shouting, stop the war. We're going to talk about uh, what a judge has... uh, find her with and where that stands. The second of two men convicted in the murder of Columbia Tribune sports editor Kent Heidholt will be walking out of prison early next year and... Brady blitz is coming, sees it goes the other way. He's got to catch it. It has got to be the shortest retirement in NFL history. Tom Brady announces he's coming back to play with the Buccaneers. I'm going to ask Kathy and Ernest, were we the ones who got played here? But we're going to start off with much, a much more serious topic, the fourth week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and one that has been marked with the death of two, or three journalists, actually, when we include uh, producer and support staff on that Fox News crew, and the critical injury of uh, a fourth. Kathy, tell us a little bit. Let's start with Brent Renaud, very highly regarded documentarian and filmmaker who had some very big bylines and accolades in his time. Yeah, I mean, he won a lot of awards for his uh, documentaries, a a very wide-ranging career, um, doing a lot of work. He was from Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, And so um, he was working really as a freelancer, um, but he's worked for many uh, publications. He was working for Time magazine at the time of this this of his death, but before that, he worked for the New York Times. He'd done a, a, a lot of work for a number of publications. So his death, I think, hit really hard uh, because he had a lot of friends around the journalism community. And of course, um, I mean, this is one of the risks that journalists take. And um, journalists go into war. His brother has not been going into combat zones because he has a young family. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, that's an indicator of how aware journalists are of the dangers that they're facing in in these situations. Uh, But it, it makes it very hard. Fox News staffers are also in mourning after a car that was driving in the suburbs of Kiev took incoming fire, killing cameraman Pierre Zakrzewski and injuring the reporter. We later learned as well the fixer, the person who was there to help them with translation and help them find their way around. Uh, producer also killed in that incident and as well. And she was 24 years old. Yeah. Really sad. Um the dangers we talk about journalists facing this is real Mm -hmm. but as kathy was saying it is also in some ways a choice that there is there is a a subset of journalists who thrive on this type of work uh yeah it's a choice uh this is uh this is nothing i would say one of the this is sort of a a a a throwback uh because for the longest time and kathy would know this Mm -hmm. you know and, and in previous wars uh, you've had embeds, so you had journalists who were embedded with with troops going into areas, and there's somewhat of a protective. Uh, I mean, they're still in danger, but they have troops around them. Uh, in this instance, uh, that's not the case, and that's been it's been sort of back and forth, back and forth, depending on the conflict whether or not reporters are going to have, they're going to be embedded with with troops or they're going to be on their own. And in this one, they're pretty much on their own and they're trying to cover a war uh, in which 
you know, you have uh, the, the Ukraine army, which is basically just trying to, 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 to do whatever they have to do to keep the Russians out. And you have the Russians who are invading and they don't particularly, at least at this point from what we see, they don't particularly care whether you're a reporter or you're a civilian or whatever. Their whole objective is to to take whatever ground they can take. So so for journalists, that puts them in a really bad spot. Yeah, there's a the other thing that happens, and I've, I've been in situations where this is the case, um, there's a lot of suspicion mm-hmm. right now, but especially on the part of the Ukrainians, about Russian infiltrators. So when you're uh, doing your job as a journalist, you really have to convince a lot of very nervous people that you really are a journalist and not somebody who's trying to spy or get behind the lines. So there's a lot of risk involved. I I have to say, yes, it is a choice of journalists, but I think what this underscores is um, we would not know as much as we know about the human suffering that is being caused by Vladimir Putin were it not for the journalists who were there doing very granular coverage. You know, it is very popular now among the military to do air wars and not to get in on the ground. The journalists are in on the ground with the people who are suffering. And they are performing, I think, a very important service in being there. Um, It is not for everybody, but I really hope that people appreciate what these journalists are doing because I think it's a perspective Um, that we all need to have um, and that public officials need to have when they make these decisions. Uh, To me, the other thing is that, you know, you don't have very many journalists who are actually on the ground covering Mm -hmm. this. And what we've seen in just the first four weeks of this is journalists that have have, have died or found themselves in harm's way are usually trying to move from one place to another to give a much wider picture of what's going on. And that puts them in, in, in real danger because Oftentimes, I mean, whereas you see convoys going, they're not in convoys. They're in in, in single cars, maybe in no more than two. In single cars that, as Kathy was saying, this is a war being fought largely from the air. Right, and right. that's not something that's going to be easily identifiable. Absolutely. That that one vehicle is carrying journalists there and, and even if you put a big sign that said press on it, yeah. I mean, it's not going to matter mm-hmm. because, as Kathy was saying, both sides are skeptical of anyone that they don't know. So there you go. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Russian state media and what's happening on the air and what people say that it's like to work inside those settings. David Korn had a really interesting story uh, first that I want to talk about that was in Mother Jones that detailed some of the memos that were coming out of the Kremlin strongly advising those who are producing news at Russian state media to repeatedly, as often as possible, use clips of Tucker Carlson and what he specifically was saying on American TV about what the Russians were doing, that his message was helping to reinforce theirs and brought credibility to what was on their air. Well, you know, again, it's propaganda. So, I mean, I'm not surprised. And if, yeah, you know, but if, if we're, we're, we're going to provide... Yeah, American yeah. media is helping to feed into that propaganda and provide it. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's what's happening. And, I mean, I, I think it's shocking, especially when you see that there's bipartisan support uh, across both across the political spe- spectrum mm-hmm. uh, against what the Russians are doing. You have someone like Tucker Carlson who's out there basically saying that, you know, 
Putin's okay. And, and, and he's simply defending his own interests, which yes. is what the United States would do if in a similar situation. Well, it, you know, this reminds me of, if you read history, um, he's kind of like the Joseph Kennedy or the Charles Lindbergh of his day. I mean, yeah. these were two very prominent figures who were didn't think it, it was worth us going to war against Adolf Hitler. So, I mean, I think history is full. There were plenty of people in Great Britain as well uh, during World War II who were Nazi sympathizers and who didn't, uh, they were pacifists, they didn't want a war, but uh, they were appeasers. And, um, and I, you know, I guess this is one for our generation. Okay, so that is one way to look at that. There's another piece to take a look at, too. Cecilia Kang put together a piece where she spoke with 11 former employees, um, recently unemployed, from RT's bureaus here in the United States. And to read this was a bit like taking a step back into bizarro world, where one woman said working in that newsroom was completely normal. It was like working in any other newsroom she had ever been in before. Until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. <laughs> right, right. And that, and that, therein lies the problem. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was amazing. We've we've talked about RT uh, uh, quite a bit. And we talked uh, specifically too in 2014 to one of the, uh, about one of the people who was directly involved in that situation, an anchor who was told to say certain things, use certain language about the invasion into Crimea. Uh, absolutely. And which she was told what to say, she walked off the set. And that was one of the first instances mm-hmm. in which you saw the actual influence of the Kremlin into RT because when they when it first started they were great pains went to great pains to say no we are an independent uh, news operation we are not uh, run by the state this sort of thing but then as soon as you you get into Crimea and then other incidents after that you saw that Russian the Russian state influence into what they were doing so when you read some of these excerpts you kind of go like well, that kind of doesn't fit with what we're actually seeing in reality, so. Yeah, this is a really interesting development um, because you see more and more countries trying to have this kind of a global profile and it's soft diplomacy, something the U.S. is very good at and um, certainly our media has been uh, a great uh, access point for us um, and a great sell for the United States around the world. So you see other Uh, countries trying to emulate that. The Chinese have a big global network now, Russia, Qatar. And on the whole, I mean, I think more media is a better thing. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think it's been very clear from the get-go that that, um, on a spectrum, um, RT has been way closer to state propaganda than any of these other organizations. It's very difficult and touchy, I think, to try to regulate because um, where do you draw the line right. uh, between RT on the one hand and Al Jazeera and CCTV, uh, Central China uh, Television, or Deutsche Welle, or France, France 24, 24, or, or BBC. BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, so, and the other problem is we have our own state affiliated media and VOA that is a very important um, voice and anything you do against some of these other organizations that maybe are sketchier could prompt a reaction not only against VOA but some U.S. private organization. So it's a very, very touchy thing Um, but RT is owned by Novosti 
And Novosti go, dates back to the Soviet era. And in the Soviet era, it was a propaganda arm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and so this is what's interesting because the guy who's in charge at RT, uh, his name is Misha Zolodnovic, um, he says that Farah, which we talked about a lot right. on this program last week, the foreign agent registration, shouldn't apply to RT. We, based on what we're pretty much saying here, yeah, it should. How do some of those other organizations you're mentioning, such as, you know, like the BBC or Deutsche Welle, how do they apply in well, that, that way? See, I don't think necessarily that Farah should apply to a media organization for this reason. Okay. That, so you're supporting um, his position. Well, you shouldn't... I'm not supporting him, but oh. I well, tend position, to agree with that. Well, that's not for, him. Yes, okay. but for the, for the reasons <laughs> yeah. that we are discussing, yeah. that it's unless and until you can come up with very transparent guidelines, um, and it, possibly you can do that, you endanger some of these other organizations. You can't just say, oh, I don't like that media organization, so we'll make them register as a foreign agent, which then sets off a cascade of other things in Washington, like you can't get a congressional press pass, and you can't, and so you're, effectively, it allows the government to license who can cover them. And I think that is dangerous in a free society. So I think we may have to tolerate certain organizations like RT, mm -hmm. but be transparent about who they are. Okay, so there's one other major Russian TV, Russia, uh, state television story that came out this week. And by now you may have seen this video all over the place, the newsreader who is on set, and then you see somebody run up behind her holding a poster uh, saying no war. And she wanted to say, stop the war and tell the people of Russia that they were being lied to and that she was asking them to, or that she was being asked to lie on the on the government's behalf. She had been arrested. Uh, her lawyer said that he had no idea where she was for about 12 hours. A judge fined her the equivalent of $280 and released her. Are we to believe that this is all over then? Mm, no, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine that it's all over. I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens yeah. if we even find out what happens. Because she could be an unperson by well, now and absolutely. be in Siberia somewhere, she, and she the could, world knows there's a two hundred and eighty dollar fine. They say we'll let you go, but here's what we're going to do to your kid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the I looked at this and I was just I was shocked. I was going, wait a minute, how was she able to get into? the station. She worked there. I know she worked okay. there, but I mean, how was she able to get me? What I meant to say was, how was she able to get on the air? No one saw her. No one stopped her. No one. Unless there may be other people there who agree with well, her. Well, uh, <laughs> well yeah, been in yeah, on yeah, it. yeah, but, and I guarantee you there's going to be a much wider investigation as to who mm -hmm. else was involved in this because they're not going to just stop with her. Yeah. So there could be additional charges. There could be additional people not seen anymore. Uh, I wonder if the anchor who was 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 reading? They're probably investigating the anchor to see whether she was involved. Yeah, in she's it. probably being investigated. As someone who's sitting in front of cameras right now, I don't know what's behind me, right. and I kind of want to check. But still, like she just kept going as though there was nothing happening and nothing going on there. Right, right. I mean, not to be startled. I mean, I don't know. You know, but you don't know if she even had a monitor in front of her to know what was happening behind her. Yeah. 
She she I have, have two monitors in front of me. I see everything that's going on. Right. You don't know what's going on behind this you is right true. now. This is true. This is true. So I'll tell you both. There's nothing okay. going on <laughs> okay. behind you right now. Let's take it a little bit closer to home. Yesterday morning, the next chapter in one of Columbia's biggest news stories of this century, it started. We've gotten confirmation that Chuck Erickson will be released from the Boonville Correctional Center early next year. Now, Erickson, you'll remember, testified that he and Ryan Ferguson attacked and killed Tribune sports editor Kent Heitholt in 2001. He then recanted that testimony and confession, saying that it had all been a dream. Ferguson went free in 2013 following a successful appeal. So according to reports that were out early yesterday morning, and other media have since followed up on them, um, but reports first on 93.3 The Eagle and KMIZ. Erickson's January release date was actually set in November, uh, but word of that is just coming out now. So if it was decided in November that he was going to be paroled next January, why would it take so long for that to, to become public? Well, the, the question is, was anybody actually looking for it? Uh, I mean, it, it may have been sitting there, but they, I mean, the state is under no obligation to send out a press release saying that they're going to release someone. No. They could have just put, you know, put it on, on the list, and, and it's up to you to, to go out and take a look to see whether or not who's on that list and how often are, are people checking that. Yeah, and I just don't know, um, in Missouri, are victims' families required to be notified? I, I mean, think, yeah, yes. yeah. I, was, I was thinking the same thing. Well, one of the other thoughts that I had, too, because there had been so many efforts underway in the past couple of years, especially since Ferguson's release, in part because of the recantation and um, how it was that how the community didn't know or how Erickson's attorneys weren't putting this information out there either because there had been efforts underway to get his conviction vacated too. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know why his attorneys wouldn't have, have alerted uh, people to the fact that this is, was going to happen. I mean, the, he may, Erickson himself may have said, hey, I want to keep this low key. I want to keep this quiet. I get out. I make decisions on what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. The last thing I want is to have a whole bunch of media and publicity on top of me right now because I mean that could that could be a problem for me. I mean I, that it, that could, it could be something that simple yeah. where Erickson is basically saying, "Look, I don't want any publicity about this." Okay. So this last topic, I have been wanting to talk about this for three weeks, and we kept running out of time. It's. Going and taking us back to a piece that was on the Pointer Institute's website about three weeks ago about black women reporter anchor, reporters and anchors who were choosing to wear their hair naturally on air. And it was an act some characterized as their own personal act of resistance. For as long as I can remember, even as recently as a couple of years ago, even in our own dress code here at KOMU, there was an expectation that women relax their hair. And women of all races relax or have straight hair. It's one of the reasons, even today, I can't think about going on camera with my natural hair, which is kind of frizzy because it was never allowed. But this is a really, it's an empowering development to see a generation of women coming up as journalists saying, no, this is who I am. And you either take me or leave me as I am. You're not going to tell me how to wear my hair. It's, it's, it is interesting. It is empowering. Uh, one of the things, I mean, you know, growing up was, you know, you never 
really talked about. I mean, that one's necessarily talked about. You talked about in glowing terms, mm-hmm. women's hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and it's I knew from, from my mom and, and having uh, my wife, my, my two daughters, what that means and how, you know, the things that they, that they do and the things that, that, uh, uh, that they go through in terms of, of, of what to do with their hair. And for these women to be able to do what they're doing, especially being in high profile positions that they are on the air every day and then to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, I want to have agency over my body, my, over my body <laughs> and over over how I look. Yeah. Uh, and to be allowed to do that uh, is 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 definitely empowering because a lot of this was written into their contracts on on how they were able to do this and and that take definitely takes agency away from you it was an expectation as you so so definitely pointed out early yeah yeah i worked with a a woman who um shall remain nameless because she's on network tv now but uh she was uh she is a very beautiful woman and uh, when i first met her she was a radio reporter and she had uh she had almost you know that kind of audrey hepburn kind of cheekbones and um and she wore her really close cropped. She was African American, and it was beautiful. It, and um, now that she's on network TV, she has your page boy kind of fully straightened. And she's still beautiful, but I thought she was more beautiful before. And I, um, you know, I think this is about conformity. Of course, I could joke that I should recuse myself from this conversation because your listeners can't see, but I'm uh, clearly have a point of view on uh, curly hair. Um, but it is, it, you know, it is absolutely true. I can say from personal experience uh, that you will get comments. Um, why don't you, you know, your hair's not yeah. neat. Um, why don't you look more neat? And uh, and so it's about a conformist view of mm-hmm. what beauty is, and uh, it's great that we're getting away from that. Well, and it's not just, I'm sorry, were you about to say something? No, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. And it's not just you know, journalism that's getting away from it. Right now, down in Jefferson City, there's a bill that's making its way through its legis- uh, through the legislature to, um, to, to make it illegal to discriminate ag- uh, against somebody based on their hair. And that the idea that protective hairstyles, braids or locks, you can't discriminate against someone, especially in an educational setting, simply because of their hairstyle. Right. And it's interesting this the this legislation, which was actually put together, I think by by one of the the think tanks, mm-hmm. uh, came about because uh, and uh, a wrestler who yes. had I believe in braids, New Jersey in New Jersey yes. who had braids was basically told by a referee, "You're going to have to cut your hair in order in order to, to participate in this in this match." Or you're going to forfeit, and the, and the and the kid had to had to basically cut his hair there on the spot or, or lose uh, his match, and and it sort of grew out of it. People were like, "Whoa, wait a minute, we've gotten to this point to where you know because someone has has braids that they're going to have to make a decision on the spot about changing, or they're going to they're going to have to forfeit something that they worked very hard for." I mean, and, and it sort of grew from that. I mean, it's it's I, I just find it. Ironic, but not surprising that it takes something like that in order to get to where we are right now with this with this bill and this legislation. Well, I'm excited to see where it goes, and I'm watching that one, too. Before we go... Tom Brady is back, and once again, he made history as the first person to ever move to Florida and unretire. <laughs> Brady's retirement lasted 40 days. 
In other words, he pretty much gave up football for Lent. <laughs> yeah, he was only retired for six weeks. His kids were like, is this something we said? I, uh... <laughs> I have a feeling Brady's gonna be like one of those bands that keep going on their farewell tour. It's like, this is our last tour this year. <laughs> Everyone's pumped that Brady's back. Uh, well, except for maybe this guy. Hours before Brady announced his return, an auction took place for the football he used to throw his final touchdown yeah. pass. The winning bid was more than $500,000. The auctioneer was like, sold to the guy with really bad timing. Yeah, there you go, you got it. <laughs> Oh, that poor guy. But, you know, maybe his timing was even worse than it sounds, or maybe he wasn't opening up a newspaper or reading anything on the Internet because there were stories out there going back to the early part of last week that this was moving in this direction, that Brady wasn't likely really retiring. Yeah, he was. He was. He had been sending messages, and one of the clear messages is the fact that he was working out. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was working yeah, out. Yeah, if I'm retired, was, I'm sitting on the couch. I mean, he was working out. Yeah, as like he was ready for you know off season training, uh, what they call OTAs. You know, for for I'm ready to go right now, mm -hmm. and and so and the fact that. Tampa Bay had not been out shopping for a quarterback. I think that was the thing that gave people a clue. It's like, wait a minute, you know, if Brady's retired, shouldn't you be out there trying to find a quarterback for your team? And, and they, they just didn't seem to be moving in that direction. So there were messages out there. But so I'm, to me personally, I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, uh, Tom Brady is the guy who likes to play the fans. And um, I'm just personally really relieved because I have a, a slide deck that I show students on um, how to evaluate information on the web. And one of the examples I use is the very first tweet that Tom Brady ever sent that. on Twitter. And it's, uh, I'm retiring. And it was dated April 1st. I forget what year it was. But I don't have to change the slides now. I was going to say, now. you, you, got, you I, got another year at I least actually, I actually sent a note to one of our colleagues saying, I don't have to change that slide. Uh, because he really didn't retire yet again. Well, you know, I've heard some cynics out there and I know I am a cynic and I hadn't even thought about putting this topic in the show today until somebody pointed out to me that he has that show on ESPN mm -hmm. plus mm -hmm. and maybe there was a little bit of Kardashian I'm gonna go get married to an NBA player that I know I'm gonna be getting divorced from in a couple of weeks anyway because the audience will eat it up and I'll keep that audience coming back for for more for longer too. Well, I mean, I don't I don't know if that how much of a factor that played into his okay. decision to come back. I think a lot of it had to do with he he's he loves competition. I mean, he's addicted to it. I mean, you think about, you know, Michael Jordan did it, Muhammad Ali did it. I mean, there are others who have have had the same sort of I'm going to retire. No, I'm not ready yet. I need to I need to play, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I do think that there was some legitimate concerns on the part of his family about his long-term health uh, with the number of concussions, uh, whether or not Tampa Bay was going to have an offensive line that could protect him. I know that was it. Spending more time with his family as his kids were growing up. I think all of that was a factor in him making the the, the first decision to retire. But then I also think that once he got into it, he's like, man, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. And we've seen that over and over with athletes. And it never ends well. And You're right. You're right. It never ends Father well. Father time has never lost. <laughs> yes.
Okay, that's a good way to put that. Well, we are just about out of time for this week. I would like to thank you for spending your last half hour with us. You can read more about each of the topics that we talked about today on our links blog. You can find those under both the programs and podcast tabs at kbia.org. We're also available wherever you get your podcast downloads, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter there. Our handle is at views on KBIA. These are all great ways to watch and listen to our program again, leave us comments, questions, see previews of what we'll be talking about next week, and more. Our thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan for directing today's show and to Aaron Hay for handling the audio. Tim Pilcher composed our original theme music. I'm Amy Simons. Be sure to join us when we're back with you again next week for another edition of Views of the News.